Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today I'm talking to Christine Hamilton. Christine is a highly experienced occupational psychologist and leadership development consultant. Her career to date has spanned across the public and private sector, and she's had several positions in the British Psychological Society. There's so much I'm keen to talk to you about today, Christine. So thank you so much for coming on and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rosie. I barely recognise that introduction, so thank you for it. (laughs) Well, something that I hear a lot from members of the Do More Than Therapy community is that it can be really difficult for applied psychologists who aren't clinical or counselling psychologists to visualise what an independent practice would mean for them. I've also been having lots of conversations recently with students on Psychology Business School about the difference between coaching and therapy and what role we can take in leadership development. So I think there's going to be a lot of listeners today who are going to gain a lot from hearing from you. So firstly, it would be brilliant to get to know a little bit about your career path and the road that you took into independent practice. Um, It it was very much a sort of tacking away and then attacking back, I would say, when I look uh, backwards at my career. So after my degree in psychology, it was the early 80s, there were no jobs. So definitely resonance with these days. Um, And took clerical jobs after I left university, thought I'm never going to be able to apply my psychology. So did some personnel management qualifications. And again, there were no um, graduate roles that I could find in South Wales at the time. Um, But by, by chance applied for a management training scheme in the Department of Employment and started to see connections between psychology and employment. They're very obvious connections, but it it really came home to me that we were in a situation where we had to enable vast amounts of people to get one, get jobs, retain them, and two, get some training that would get them out of dead end occupations and into new ones. So it was a fascinating time to be involved in large scale schemes to enable some of that transition for a lot of people so started to tenuously see my psychology in that frame and then moved on moved up and managed all sorts of offices and schemes in the southeast of England and then moved back to Scotland and happened to see an advert that was about um, graduate training schemes and thought in the NHS and thought, oh, that's fascinating. That's an interesting area. And discovered that a lot of it was about assessment uh, for part of the year and then about development, bringing these young people in to parts of the NHS, helping them acclimatize and also get professional qualifications. And of course, that's at the heart of occupational psychology. Who is suited to a role? who could deal with the complexities of this particular kind of the public sector, part of the public sector, who could become a manager and a leader of people. So I was again tacking my way back to assessment of people, young people, and got drawn back into the world of psychology through my network and thought, you know, this is really an area I need supervision on. 
um, spoke to local psychologists, built up my knowledge, uh, used some of their services, piggybacked on their expertise, and then gradually thought, no, I really need to go for my chartered status. So it was very incremental forwards and backwards as the job required and as my interest was piqued, I'd say. I really love the message in there about talking to people and being open about what you're doing and what you'd like to be doing. Because I think often, um, you know, we're not sure where we're going. We're not sure what we can do with our qualifications. But there are people out there who are doing inspirational things. Exactly. And usually they're quite happy to talk about it. Yes. More often than not, unless they're very, very up against it, um, people enjoy having a cup of coffee when we can do that and just talking and listening. They love it. Um, I don't think I've had many refusals personally for me or for anybody else when I've said, would you mind talking to this person about? I, I, I could count the fingers on one hand. People have said no, and it's been for very good reasons. Mm. Yeah, me too. And I think if you think about our own behaviour, I think certainly recently I've been getting messages on LinkedIn from people who are applying for the clinical psychology doctorate. Mm -hmm. I always try and help because I think we all know how privileged we are yes. um, to yes. be able to call ourselves psychologists. It's certainly not an easy route and you need a lot of luck um, mm -hmm. and other things yeah. to, to get there. Um, so I think there's a lot of goodwill in psychology and in therapy that means if you reach out to somebody, it's really likely they're going to try and help you. Very much. I think, I think we all have either been there or know close relatives who are there. Um, so there is a lot of appreciation of that. Um, but I, I think I would say that, I, and this is my ignorance of other divisions, but I'd say occupational psychology has particular problems in that we have very, very few, and it's getting even less, opportunities um, to be trained as occupational psychologists and paid at the same time. Mm. So usually we have to do HR roles, training and development roles um, under the banner of another, another job title than psychologist and get those um, pieces of expertise and competence under our belt and then find another way in, in that role or in a part-time role to acquire the other aspects of our training to, to acquire enough expertise for our portfolio to get our chartered status. So we're, we have to kind of be very creative um, uh, and determined to stretch our roles when we get them to make sure we get the, the, the domains covered in terms of occupational psychology. And that can be very challenging because employers want their piece of work done. They don't really want many of their new starts to, to go into areas of their interest. So it can be quite challenging yeah, to get that, ex, that, that range of expertise. Yeah, and something else that I was gonna ask you actually about your journey was kind of what it, what it must have been like to be in a management role and introducing psychological thinking mm -hmm. um, at that time. How was that received? I think people are intrigued by psychology, a wee bit daunted sometimes, but generally intrigued. And as long as, and this is not to be patronizing, as long as it's made relevant. So how is this going to make our task um, more effective? That I think on the whole organizations want to use best practice. They want it to be effective. 
they want to get the best people for the role. So they're very interested in what does the evidence say, but they will not give you much time to explain it. So they expect you to do the research and then refine it um, and get it right. Um, so yes, I think they are intrigued, but they need it, uh, not, not exactly translated, but it, they need to be engaged. Uh, they need to find it relevant. Yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking one of the tensions might be that often we feel we need to experiment, <laughs> that you can't know exactly what's going to work in a particular context. You mm. kind of, you might have an idea and want to test it. Mm. But I imagine there's not that much room for testing. Not really, um, particularly if you're doing something in mass scale like, a, like recruitment, you need to determine your approach, refine it, and particularly as, as one of the many things you want to do is engage the potential employers of the trainees. So you might involve them in the assessment process and in the interviews, and you have to go for some sort of consistency of standard and confidence in, all, in, that, in that sort of large group, that large cohort of helpers. Um, and you can't overstretch them, so you can't use them too much. So you've got a large body of people that you're trying to get to do pretty much the same thing. Uh, and of course, you would uh, have ways of checking on consistency and standards, but it, it has to be very practical in terms of the processes you use. So, yes, we used to have to put a lot of effort into explaining ensuring people felt, felt clear what they had to do, confident, sometimes give them tuition, but it was about masses of people being able to do good practice was, was often what we were asked, asked for. Wow, so where did you go from there? So it sounds like you kind of carved out a, a management role for yourself, mm. which allowed you to develop your competence mm. as an occupational psychologist. Where did your career go after that? Well, because I was looking at um, what did these new people in the organization need in terms of building up their management competence, we would think about the placements, but we would also think about um, what knowledge did they need. And so we put together with um, a couple of universities, um, management modules, how to lead small groups of people, teams of people, larger groups of people, what that required internally for the individual, for them to find their own style, their own way through, how to deal with difficult situations, difficult people, um, new policies, etc. So we, we identified the key areas that they would have to build their competence in over a couple of years, and we put together management and leadership modules which built their, their, their knowledge and also a bit of skills development uh, we, we put in there as well. So I was doing that for the graduates and then I was asked to do it for some of the clinicians, some of the more senior managers, because really it was just the sort of same sort of stuff but higher level. And again, it was just very interesting to think about. So after somebody's built their foundation management leadership career, what do they need next? Um, and the most fascinating areas were um, people who would touch on management now and again in their careers, but had to be leaders of large numbers of people, so often clinicians, um, non-managers, where they didn't have much time to learn. They had vast resources and people to lead, um, very, very bright, 
Uh, so what you had to present was something that they could see the relevance of almost immediately and apply it. Um, but also have a sense of, I'm intrigued by this. I want to get good at this. So it's, again, it was our psychology in terms of, so what is it that will bring this group of people slightly reluctantly sometimes towards the subject matter? What's in it for them? Why would they want this? And how from their position do we build their competence? Because you can't take them through months and months of, of a master's course on leadership, you have to think about how do we get that inefficiently? Um, uh, so that was fascinating, really enjoyed that. Yeah, I bet, because I think, you know, definitely from my NHS experience and my experience in the prison service as well, often it's when somebody is a really amazing clinician, they get promoted out of their clinical role and into management when that's a totally different skill set. And I always kind of wondered how on earth are people supposed to make that jump? Yeah, I think too little attention is paid to it. Um, I think often uh, professionals find themselves, engineers, um, all sorts of, of disciplines find themselves in these situations. And it's quite a tricky thing to say, do you know, I haven't a clue how to. So I think, I think the HR department, the training department has to be quite delicate and astute about actually when you look at this role if we're going to move somebody who hasn't had the opportunity to lead lots of people before or big resources we've got to give them something judicious and we've also got to manage their pride mm -hmm. um we we have to make sure it feels commensurate to their level mm -hmm. uh, so again a lot of psychology in it absolutely yeah that sounds really fascinating mm, it, it, it was and it is um, and then after that, uh, that, de that department that I worked for was closed uh, in the NHS in Scotland. And I was pregnant with my first child, heavily pregnant when this was announced. And so I decided I had to go into self-employment um, and spoke to some of my contacts who I've been working with over years saying, well, when I returned from maternity leave, you know what what might there be might there be projects i could do etc so that was my it was kind of propelled into self-employment uh, independent practice at that, at that point yeah that's interesting because you know i was propelled into independent practice as well um and i think often the questions that i get asked from members of do modern therapy who um are either in occupational psychology or, or something that isn't you know, clinical or counselling typically is, you know, how on earth do I do this independently? Mm. And because maybe they've been in a, in a clear defined role in an organisation for a long time. Mm. So how did you go about kind of piecing that together? How did you know what you could do independently? Well, the same thing as you were saying before, uh, Rosie, it's very much about talking to people, um, talking to people that you, you used to get to do work. And of course, there's a sort of, not exactly an awkwardness, but there's an ethics around that um, because we are rarely um, suddenly told we're going to be made redundant. There's, there's usually a sort of um, halfway house happening of uncertainty. And so that's when people need to put the feelers out uh, in, in a way that is ethical for them and for, for everybody else they're speaking to to say, well, I'm not sure what the future is going to bring, but can I speak to you about what your knowledge is of what's out there? 
Um, people feel awkward in those situations. If you say, I think I'm going to be made redundant. Can you give me something to do? And none of us would do that. But, but equally, there's no point in not using those contacts. Um, and people, as we've said earlier, are only too happy to have a discussion. They can sometimes think, oh, crumbs, is this going to get a bit tricky? Are they going to ask me for a job or something? Um, and as long as it's clear, no, that's, that, you know, I just want to send you out on the market. What's out there? What do you think? And more often than not, people will do that. Um, and they will often say, well, I don't have, nothing's coming to mind, but do you, how do you know such and such? Because I heard they might be doing such and such. So it's, it's that way that you build up. Um, one, your knowledge of what's um, marketable out there, and two, how to pitch against that, because uh, that, that is a skill as well. Um, so yes, one acquires these pieces of knowledge, um, and it's often just through other people's goodwill that that, that happens, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think if, if you're listening to this and feeling like, you don't have much of a network, you don't have very many people that you can reach out to who seem relevant, then reach out to people that don't seem directly relevant and ask them who they know. Because I know I was very much in that position where I was like, I don't know anybody who's remotely relevant to my career. Um, but actually, I had, you know, twice removed connections who were very happy to be introduced and, and talk to me. And that really made a big difference. Also use LinkedIn. I know Christine's active on LinkedIn. I am. You can literally search by job roles and you'll be very surprised who gets back to you. I'm doing an assignment for my MBA at the moment. Um, which is really interesting, uh, but it's about operations management and sustainability. So couldn't be further out of my expertise. Wow. <laughs> um, and and I wanted to do a case study on a, on a big business. I can probably say this actually. I wanted to do a case study on on Weight Rose. <laughs> I can't say the name properly, yeah. um, but they had a sustainability operation uh, called Unpacked. Very fascinating about plastic free. I'm very interested in that. So I wanted to use them for a case study, reached out to a few very senior people I found on LinkedIn. They got back to me. People are so helpful. They are. They are. And, and uh, whenever, I, and this is absolutely guaranteed, but ever it is a psychologist who wants to link in with me for whatever reason, I never say no. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we all get people trying to link in or wanting to link in you think I can see absolutely no connection whatsoever so the answer unfortunately is no but if it's a psychologist in training or of course we want to link in because our network could be useful to them so yeah yeah exactly I just think don't be afraid to reach yeah. out I think yeah. people get really worried that it's going to be annoying or a hassle yeah. but at the end of the day if somebody's too busy they, they just scroll past it absolutely and most of the time they won't so no downside, really. No, no. So that was kind of how you got your foot in independent oh. practice. Oh. How did it grow and, and become what it is now? Um, well, again, tacking backwards and forwards. So I got some long term projects while I had my second child. Um, so it was sort of um, more like it, definitely it was employment. It was long term projects, again, in the hospital sector. And I looked for that because I thought I've got two young children. I want, I need, uh, I don't have the capacity to be self-employed because there was just so much um, 
work coming in potentially I thought I know I need to control this for a while that was just, that's just me I, I needed to control it um, but it was the similar sort of thing it was leadership development in this case for nurses award ward managers loved it absolutely loved that work we could create it from scratch um, test out where in the end it was 600 people who went through those programs got terrific feedback just loved that job loved it um, and then the project came to an end. So I tried to find another job um, not too far away from home, again in the NHS. Um, didn't enjoy that one so much. Very difficult dynamics. Um, and then uh, I saw a job in organizational development and for psychologists, particularly occupational psychologists, that's just a dream come true because that is about the whole gamut of people in the organization. Um, and it was an organization going through a lot of change, potentially a big geographic move. So it was just a terrific opportunity. So I did that for five years, had some very interesting projects, and then um, left to go to do um, a large scale project in a trust and in a health board that was near to me uh, geographically, because I'd done a lot of traveling. Um, and then thought, well, maybe self-employment is for me. So again, reached old contacts um, and set up my business about eight years ago and thoroughly enjoy it now. Um, in terms of building that, it was very much about using my network, but also thinking about, well, what is the kind of work I want to be doing? What's the kind of work I'm good at? And who is in that marketplace? And contacting them and saying you don't know me but I work in this area can I send you an example and um, can we have a discussion can I hear more about what you are doing or what you're looking for what you're looking for I think is a really good question um, and built up a lot of work in fact almost too much over the but that took a long time it was, um, I did work for the NHS, I did work for all parts of the private sector, um, contacted um, organisations so I could be their associate. So I had all sorts of models of working. Um, and, and about three years ago, decided it was just getting too much of, I've, um, I've sort of reduced some of that now. Um, but yes, it, it was it was chance sometimes, you know, the, the place was, was closing or the job was changing um, and I just had to adjust. Yeah, and I think what sort of shines through that is that you weren't afraid to reach out to people and be honest about what you wanted to do and what you could do yeah. and have a conversation about it yes was that always easy for you or did you struggle with that at all no and sometimes um I made huge mistakes I remember somebody approaching me out of the blue to do some work I think because um that, that they suddenly had a gap in their cohort of trainers and it was in Manchester and I thought, oh, this actually sounds really interesting. It's with the insurance sector. Oh, I haven't worked there. Oh, yes. Oh, thank you very much for seeking me out. And then realized that they would pay me through some sort of umbrella, umbrella uh, organization. And it was a nightmare sending in all the paperwork. Um, the actual work itself was terrific. But the, the logistics of getting paid was horrendous. Um, so, so I learned from that. In my in my case, I would not would not engage in that arrangement again. Um, 
then others where it was highly prestigious organization that I happened to get in touch with when they happened to have a need. And we had lots of meetings in London and I couldn't believe the palatial offices. And I thought, oh, I've arrived, but not one jot of work (laughs) came of it. And so you you don't know where these things are gonna take you. Um, Some of them work wonderfully and are long-term and some you know, explode in like fireworks and come to nothing. So you, 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 you just have to kind of roll a bit with it, I think. Yeah, and I like what you said about having a few different models at the beginning and kind of trying it all out. And then when you feel like you've got a solid base, yes. just cutting off the ones that you don't really like. <laughs> yes, because in, in our field, there is a market for um, assessment for roles, of course, and also assessment for development of organizations who want people to go through a development center and then have some very clear pointers about what they, their strengths clearly are and, and how they can hone those and also what they need, they need to change or develop in order to get to the next level. Um, and I love, love, love that work. But many clients want incredibly detailed, lengthy reports um, that's something I'm sure many psychologists are asked to do in, in, in different um, uh, aspects of their roles. Uh, but some of these reports are killers. They are so long and they have to be turned around so fast and they have to be absolutely correctly spot on in terms of evidence. They are exhausting. Um, now I could I found I could do that um, you know 10 years ago, but more recently, unless it's really interesting piece of work, I won't put myself through that because, you know, the return, some some organizations almost seem to judge the quality of the work by the length of the report, as opposed to give me something pithy that, that this person can really focus on and work with and use the psychologist to discuss that with the individual, to, to help them extend themselves through, through discussion, through exploration. Some just wanna have a report and yeah, I'm, I'm very, very thoughtful about some of those, I must say. Yeah, and I think it does come down a bit to your vision for your business and your life yeah. and what you want your business to bring you. Because I do know people um, in the Demon Therapy membership who really love doing these big, it's medico-legal reports usually um, for us. And they love that. And they would very happily sit at their desk and work on those for a a long time. And so as long as as you're being paid well for all of that time, I think that's a real sticking point and that I've learned the hard way. You've got to be, you've got to pay me for all of the time so that I can give it the space um, without it encroaching into my time with my family. And then if that feels good to you, then you might want to keep doing it. Whereas other people might try that out and feel like actually, you know, I've chosen to be self-employed. So I have the freedom to do work I love and I don't love that. (laughs) So I'm going to do something else. Exactly. Exactly. And to use your expertise where you, you can get into the flow, I think is this and get more satisfaction as well as pay the bills Mm. um yeah I think that's very important and and what I'm realizing I've forgotten is during all of that time I was also doing coaching counseling training then coaching training um to get accreditations etc so yeah so extended my work more into the coaching side 
Yeah, that's interesting. So can you tell me a bit about the coaching that you do? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very wide range. Um, In the public sector, uh, there, as totally understandably, there's there's a, a demand for senior level posts and particularly in the NHS in Scotland, GPs to get coaching because it's recognized that many roles are coming under pressures that were not foreseen 10 years ago. Um, So there's something about helping people think that one through. What's their way through this? When, When they came into the profession, it was like this and now it's like that. What do they make of that? How do they work their way through it, as I say? Same with directors. Uh, where, the, where the responsibilities sometimes can change hugely. Um, and then there's another market um, which has been extended during COVID for a much wider range of staff um, that would not have been considered to have coaching, that, would, that would offer wouldn't have been given in the past. So that has widened hugely. Um, so that's a lot of people being offered coaching. And the methodology is, well, if you're going to offer that to a much wider uh, range of people, you've got to make it very efficient. And the way to make it efficient is um, having platforms that enable the matching to happen efficiently, um, very efficient management of time uh, and fees. And, And that's a trend that I think is coming in in so many parts of psychology Uh, And it's one that I'm concerned about. Um, It's not to say that it's not a wonderful thing to widen who gets opportunities, but there's also something about commensurate um, reward for expertise and training and experience. So so there's all sorts of markets suddenly opening up in coaching. Mm, That's really interesting. So I think a question that I get asked a lot is what's the difference between therapy and coaching? Yeah. Um, Yeah, actually, I'd be interested to get your perspective on that. What do you think the difference is? Yeah. Well, the simplistic answer is that coaching is very much uh, features. So where are you now, right here and now? And where do you want to be? And what's your way towards that? and what might be the barriers and what's your way through those barriers. So it's very future focused, but also taking in the, the signals, the evidence from here and now in the body and the, in the mind and emotions, et cetera. Um, so it's goal focused at its most simple level. Um, and that's often where we start. What, what's this for? What kind of outcomes are you after? Um, sometimes, um, if we're brought in by the organization to do a range of, of people, then we would have meetings with the manager of the individual and the coachee. And we'd have to form some sort of triangular relationship. Oh, um, wow, that sounds complicated. It, it, it can be. On the whole, it just one just has to be very clear right from the start about that arrangement, that contracting which is what is it that the company, the manager will hear of what's discussed? Um, what's the remit from the organization? And often they'll say, well, what I want is this person to be more this, or generally we need our, our this tier of people to be doing this more, or we're going through this change, so we want to everyone to be doing this more and this less. 
Uh, so it's sometimes quite vague what mm. they actually want, um, but it's incredibly important for the coachee once their boss has said, I want more of this, to think through with somebody. So do I want that? Can I, can I do that? Will I still be me if I do that? Um, what's my way of being more like that, but not an identikit? Um, and what's reasonable to expect of that coaching in terms of conforming to what's sometimes quite vaguely expressed? And, and when, sometimes our role is to help batten that down. You know, what is it that this boss is asking for? And is it legitimate? Mm. So it can be quite a delicate conversation and we always have to be mindful, even when we're one-to-one -one with a person, what does the organization need of us to now? Because quite, quite understandably, all sorts of things can come up in that coaching discussion and we attend to that and we will pause at a certain point in the discussion and say, so where, where are we going in terms of what the organization needs? Are we being sufficiently mindful? Now, you don't do that too much, but you do have to do it if that's the contract that you're in. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the way that you've described that because I imagine it being very clear to the coachee. Yeah. I think because as a, as a therapist, I've worked with people who have had coaching in their organizations before sometimes. Mm -hmm. And where that's been problematic, it tends to be when they felt like they weren't being heard because either the needs of the organization very strongly came first and there wasn't much space for them to kind of question any of those goals mm -hmm. um, or kind of the other way. And it wasn't mentioned until the end, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which again, that also just feels a bit um, difficult. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, speaking to that point and your last point, there's, there's a tension in therapy as well sometimes when we might be in a service that has a particular goal. I mean, I'm thinking of colleagues who might work in, in IAPT mm -hmm. um, or of people uh, who are working with children when there's often another person involved. There might be, or actually I work with loads of people who are, their therapy is paid for by their employer. Yes. Um, and so there's always this expectation that one of the goals will be returning to work, returning to school. And you always have to question as a therapist, who wants that? Mm -hmm. Is the person sitting in front of me saying they want that because they've been told to, or do they really want that? Yes. Um, and yeah. I imagine in a lot of ways that must be a lot more complicated in coaching. Um, it sounds very similar, actually, Rosie. It sounds very similar because how many of us uh, actually question what what's good for me uh, people often work their way into roles up the ladder and then discover well actually I don't think I'm very good at this or actually I'm not very ambitious to go higher or I'm frightened of going higher um, I certainly don't want anybody around me to be aware of that so how do I work out what I want because so many of us receive the message that this is what we should want and actually it, it paves the way, it makes life better. But is it what I'm good at? Is it what I want? And it's, it's not surprising. People discover that sometimes well into their careers um, and want to find a way in another direction. Uh, so sometimes people astonish themselves in what comes out in the coaching 
um, because we sometimes use diagnostics to help them, uh, personality questionnaires, etc., strengths inventories. Uh, and they think, you know, I've often thought that, but I didn't know how to articulate it. And here it is in front of them. They find themselves saying these things and then saying, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And so that so, so you never know what's going to come out of these coaching discussions. And of course, it's our responsibility to say once that's come out to work with them about oh so what so what what are you going to do what what options are there how can we work our way through this together that sounds really interesting really fulfilling work and I think probably for that reason actually there's a lot of people that I know will be listening to this who would really like to skill themselves up maybe they're coming from a clinical or a counseling background but they're interested in organizational work um, particularly coaching or, or leadership development are things people talk about a lot in the community so where would be the best place for them to start if they want to skill themselves up in that area I would definitely recommend that they get accreditation, um, if, if only to, to, to properly work through for themselves the differences between counselling, clinical psychology and coaching. Um, so there's ILM qualifications, um, there's the European Mentoring and Coaching Council, um, there's a number of bodies who um, will, will inform you about what, what, who are the providers of qualifications, um, and what the levels are, and um, they, they each have different strengths and weaknesses. I would say that what I've observed is when you're when you're shopping around for the course that might suit you, is the more that you are observed actually coaching in in the classroom, of course, um, and also recordings. And that might be similar to, to, to other divisions. But the more that the course actually does that and gives you feedback, the better. Because I have come across people who have taken coaching qualifications and have said to me, do you know, but I don't actually know if I do it right. Uh, I can do the assignments, but I don't know if I do it right. And that's a horrible feeling. Uh, you know, how do you know what your competences, competencies are? And the ones that do um, invest, and it is a lot of time to watch you coaching, what's, what, that, what stays with you is that, that that person you respect is saying, yes, you've reached that standard. And you, of course, you carry that then in to when you're having difficult discussions with people that you're good enough and you have evidence that you're good enough. Um, and I would say that's just so important uh, for that quality of relationship to be as it needs to be. That's really helpful. So just to recap those organisations that you can look for the courses on. Yes. Uh, ILN. ILM for mother. M for mother. Uh, yeah. EMCC. EMCC. And there is one other um, that's not coming to mind at the moment. But if you look up coaching qualifications, there's a number of bodies. ICF, ICF is the other one, International Coaching Federation. Um, those, those three um, are the ones to look up and then, then be really very discriminating about who you get your training with. Mm. Yes, I think because a, a couple of people actually have been talking in the community recently about 
just the vast numbers of choices they've had looking yeah. for coaching qualifications. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't know how to tell. So I think looking at those accrediting bodies would be a really great place to start. Yeah. So I'll link up to all of those in the show notes so that people can link straight through to them. Right. So I know this is a big area of interest for a lot of people listening to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but for our occupational psychologists um, who are listening now, if if they're thinking about starting a private practice, what would be the first step that you'd recommend to them? Um, I think about the where they're working now and what what um, what of that is most appealing to them mm. and where their strengths are. Uh, so and that's a, such an obvious thing to say but I would definitely say so what is it I'm good at uh, and that I get I get my sense of myself in, in doing um, and look in that direction first because um, I mean it's, it, it is obvious but people sometimes think I need to be a jack of all trades no you don't um, so what am I good at and what what does that look like in terms of an offer? So am I good at the assessment side and the reporting writing? Am I good at training and development, the creation of, de- of, of um, learning approaches? Am I somebody who is good at um, work design? Um, am I good at this sort of organizational and systems aspect of occupational psychology? So where where are the areas and and there's five key areas within occupational psychology charter status that you can look up on the the British Psychological Society so think using almost that to say so which are the areas that I am already have a depth of expertise in and who needs that who is it is it large organizations is it is it small organizations is it individuals and and where do where 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 do they find that um, are the directories I should be in? Uh, are there associateships I should be in? Um, a big one for us is the um, CIPD, which is the HR and, le- and learning and development governing body, a professional body. Um, and they have lots of um, local networking meetings. Every part of geography of the UK will have local um, groups and they love to get speakers. So just plug, going to some of those and plugging yourself in and saying, here's what I can offer um, and making it interesting, just as we were saying earlier, make, pitch it to that group um, and why they should use your approach, if not you, why they should, you should use your approach. So local, if you're, if you're wanting to work locally, there's an, it's there's lots of, of of networks one can plug into through that, and if you don't mind where you work, then I suppose what I did, which was approach the best and say, have you got some projects and openings? Can I talk to you? It's brilliant advice, and I, I think it just shines through all of this, doesn't it? Like get talking to people and yeah. don't be afraid to build yeah. that network. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you can't you can't do it in secret. Mm-hmm. I do remember when I started my practice. I, um, I set up a domain name that had nothing to do with my name 
Um, I, I, I didn't use anything to do with my personal social media whatsoever. I, I literally wanted to create a business where nobody would know it was me. <laughs> that did not work. It did not work. It was when I got more open to the idea of having to show up as me, talk to people, let people I, I knew know that I was in business, <laughs> that things really exploded. So I think that's really helpful advice. Yes. And I think you can still be you. You know, we were talking earlier about some many of many of us would characterize psychologists as a bit reticent to market ourselves. And in a, in a way, it's not marketing ourselves, although it is, it's it's marketing what we can offer and that we are friendly, approachable, caring, ethical, professional people. And it's not that that's a rarity, but people like it when they come across it, that they get a sense of whatever that work is, that you will take care, that you will be professional, that you will apply um, good practice, that you are bound by regulations. Uh, we're doing some work in the Division of Occupational Psychology to try and get the public sector to say, well, we, we need chartered psychologists, not just somebody who's, who's put that in their title. So we're trying to say, you know, look for that quality. And if you've got it to offer, you know, there's not many of us on the ground, really, when you think about the, the demand for the work, the type of work. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I think, you know, if you need a confidence boost across any whatever area of psychology you're in, then take a look at some less qualified people that yes. are, are doing things that you could probably do better. Yes. Um, I know it sounds mean, but it's certainly true. Yeah. It is. It, on the whole, it is because you know more. You know what a, a good approach to that looks like and you know what a sort of cutting corners looks like so thank you so much christine you shared so much value and i think people are going to want to kind of look you up and connect with you probably right. so where is the best place for people to find you uh, just in linkedin christine hamilton um and it will be under occupational psychologist and coaching psychologist um coaching psychology is going through a lot of changes but that's how that's how you'll find me Brilliant. Yep. And I will uh, link to that in the show notes as well so that people can find you quickly. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Before you go, I just wanted to check something out with you because I don't know if this is just me, but do you sometimes wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that's going to bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? <laughs> I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd miss something really big when I was setting up my insurance or data protection practices. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases properly. And it's hard, no, actually it's impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you have a secure business underneath you. But it can be really overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. So I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you have everything in place for your security and theirs. You can download it now from psychologist.drosie.co.uk forward slash client hyphen checklist and the link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. 
If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy. Therapy.